Welcome back to another edition of In Play Podcast, the official podcast of Beyond the Box Score. I am your host, Evan Davis. Writing solo tonight are my co-host, Nick Stellini, unfortunately could not be with us. And uh, in general, uh, one of the unfortunate side effects of being uh, a, a freelancer and having our entire operation run by freelancers is that occasionally we have to focus on our day jobs. So we had taken a couple of weeks off, but we are very happy to be back and very excited to have a couple of guests with us today. Um, our first guest she is a contributor to Beyond the Box Score, as well as the co-host of Hardball Times Audio podcast, and has written a couple of wonderful pieces over the last few days that will be the foundation of our conversation today. Mary Craig. Mary, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And we are also joined by an erstwhile uh, contributor to Beyond the Box Score, but an all-around good guy and a stressed-out Cubs fan, nonetheless, uh, Zach Mosier. Zach, how are you? Well, I've had two beers, so okay. <laughs> Great. We'll see if that number holds for the remainder of this recording. Uh, I'm not sure that it will. Um, I want to start with a piece of news that really didn't seem like news, at least in the way that more high-profile baseball outlets covered it. And that was the uh, ruling by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, more or less denying minor league baseball players the opportunity to earn a living wage. And the way that that is done is that um, minor league players challenged MLB's antitrust exemption when it came to uh, the compensation of minor leaguers. Um, Mary, you wrote a really great piece about this that not only kind of digs into detail on the ruling itself, but uh, gives it a little bit of historical and and political context. Um, can you tell us exactly what this ruling is, where it came from, and 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 what exactly it means now for for minor league uh, baseball players going forward? Mm-hmm. Um, so this ruling uh, is the product of a Miranda VC League, which is a lawsuit filed by uh, a number of minor league players um, against C League and all 30 uh, major league baseball organizations. Um, and it was first filed uh, last year, and uh, it sought to um, challenge the antitrust exemption. Um, that baseball has been subject to uh, basically since its inception as a professional organization. Uh, so minor leaguers um, have been uh, at the subject of the owners uh, uh, basically since uh, the minor leagues were created. Um, and although uh, slowly major league players uh, on the backs of uh, a strong play uh, players association um, gradually got to dictate their own salaries, got to enter into free agency. Minor leaguers got none of this. Um, and they're paid uh, far below the minimum wage. So uh, that is what this ruling is challenging. Um, and it is the fourth uh, challenge uh, brought against the antitrust exemption. Uh, so the other three made their way to the Supreme Court and each time the court ruled either, um, you know, outright in favor of the owners or decided that it was a congressional matter. 
and so this one will probably go to the Supreme Court as well. That's the next step. Um, and the court probably will follow uh, the ruling of the previous three decisions. Um, and after that, there's basically no other recourse that uh, minor league players can turn to except for, for public outrage, basically, um, to try and change the system. Uh, so that's where we're at. What would have happened, had the ruling gone in players' favor, what would have resulted? Um, so they would have had to have uh, basically um, forced teams to pay them um, at least minimum wage. Um, and then it would have gotten really interesting because there is a, a congressional bill that is going through the rounds right now uh, called uh, Save Our Pastime Act. Um, and so it is trying to make law um, the uh, minor leaguers antitrust exemption. Uh, so that ruling would have come into conflict with this bill. Um, and then they probably would have had like another three or four years going through the courts to challenge all areas of both um, this piece of uh, court ruling and the legislation. Um, give us a, some context as to why this was necessary. Um, what is – and. You know, our listeners obviously know a lot of the broad contours of kind of what the day-to-day -day life of minor league baseball players is. Um, but but what kind of what kind of money are we talking about here? Why was this deemed an important move um, for minor leaguers? Are they making that little money uh, that they would require such a such drastic action? Mm -hmm. uh, so the average minor leaguer makes uh, $3,000 to $7,000 per year um, because they can't file any sort of overtime. Um, they're only paid for the hours that they work during the season. And I think it's capped at something 22 hours a week for these minor league players, um, even though the work they put in greatly exceeds that. Uh, so, so they're really not paid anywhere near close to the amount of work that goes into being a minor league baseball player. Uh, and how is Major League Baseball justified in making the argument that they are only, uh, I believe the phrase was used, that they are basically apprentices or, or, or something to that effect? Um, how, on what legs does that argument stand? Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty ridiculous argument. Um, when we look at it, but from baseball standpoint, it's because they only technically work um, during these uh, few short months of the actual baseball season. Um, and then there's also uh, the, the idea that they're not actual professionals in their um, chosen field because they're not in the major leagues. Uh, so, so they're just kind of like interns, basically, um, would be another term that that could be used. Um, to get a better sense of the of the pay structure, are we talking like are are triple A guys still getting paid seven grand a year, or are they making a little bit more? Like, is is the three and seven K range like we're talking three K a year for rookie ball, seven K for triple A? How do you understand kind of the spread between mm -hmm. between levels? 
So AAA players make slightly more than this, um, but if a player isn't on the 40-man roster, uh, then they're not going to make a whole lot more than the 7,000. That's the average. They might make up to you know 12, 15,000, but but it's not anywhere near close to to what would be just. And and how do they go about negotiating their salaries? What's the what's the contract structure uh, that's currently in place? Um, and specifically, let's focus on non forty man guys, maybe in double mm-hmm. A or triple A. Uh, so it is based on service time at um, each level. So you do kind of make more money the longer you uh, uh, play in the minor leagues, as long as you advance at a certain rate, like whatever the stipulation is. Um, so so they do get like raises um, from time to time, but but most of the players either don't advance um, according to, to what their contract stipulates that they should in order to earn these raises or they're not in baseball long enough to ever see it. So the uh, do minor league contracts work similar to what, pre-1976 um, major league contracts worked? In other words, are they one-year contracts subject to renewal at the pleasure of the organization? Um, are players able to sign um, multi-year deals that guarantee them at least a minimum of, of uh, access to, to minor league affiliated ball? How, do, how, do the, how does the length and the security and the guarantee of those contracts function? Um, so most of them are at the subject of renewal of, of the team, mm-hmm. uh, unless they, uh, players specifically sign like five year or whatever entry level deals with, with the club. Zach, I want to, I want to pivot to you. Um, can we put this deal kind of in a, bro- in the broader context of the history of, of labor, um, uh, in, in major league baseball, where does this fit along the lines of, say, the antitrust, uh, the original antitrust case in the 1920s, um, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale in the 60s, Kurt Flood in the 70s, and even going on through uh, the collusion era in the 80s and the strike in the 90s. How does this all kind of fit into uh, uh, labor history in baseball? I think uh, it's very consistent with kind of the established precedents that courts have set that uh, Major League Baseball itself has set. Um, it's not really any different than the ruling from the 20s. Uh, I mean, the antitrust exemption still exists. Uh, the Ninth Circuit reaffirmed that. Uh, we're, you know, we haven't seen any real legal change. And that's actually kind of remarkable to me because um, when the Players Union was formed, it was kind of on the tail end of union strength in the United States. Um but they ended up becoming, I mean, the most powerful players union of any of the four major North American sports um, throughout the 70s and 80s, especially. Um, but uh, it's kind of waned in the past 20 years in terms of the union strength. Um, and really, in terms of legal stuff, it hasn't changed a whole lot. And that's kind of, I mean, on one hand, surprising that they didn't really catch any sort of, you know, the tailwind of uh kind of the labor movement in the mid in mid-century United States um, but not surprising in that it hasn't changed in about a hundred years and in why would that be the case is it is it something as simple as 
you know, the mentality of all these guys play a game. They should be appreciative for what they have because they don't have to do any real work. Uh, Is that kind of the mentality of the way that uh, public opinion uh, uh, shapes this case? Um, Or is it or is it something a little deeper into how the economics of baseball function? I think it's actually kind of a fusion of the two in that. A lot of folks have a difficult time envisioning Major League Baseball and organized baseball, including the minor leagues, as something beyond this kind of paternalistic, you know, one owner per team organization. Um, I mean, the ramifications of the minor leaguers having to be paid a living wage would be huge. Uh, It would, I mean, maybe strike a minor blow toward sports ownership in general. I'm not sure that it would have that big of effects, except on the kind of granular scale. I mean, minor leaguers would, of course, benefit from that. Uh, but it's it's difficult for folks to imagine something kind of beyond the system that we have right now. And because baseball is so tied to American culture, because, um, I mean, senators and Congress people will wax poetic about it on, you know, the Congress floor, uh, it's very difficult to kind of push you know, even the farthest left of those kind of who represent us in Washington uh, to see it differently. To jump off of that, Mary, you made a specific point um, when Flood v. Kuhn uh, went before the courts in 1975 about the conditions of of minor league baseball players. Um, jumping off of that, can you um, elaborate in your piece as to what effects this actually has on minor leaguers, like how this actually affects their day-to-day life? Mm -hmm. Um, So for most minor leaguers, um, for for most people, uh, money plays a huge part of of their life, and um, especially for people who are below the poverty line and so far below um, as these minor leaguers are, um, it's it's a constant concern for them. They don't know where they're going to live. Um, They don't know what what condition their housing will be in, and most of it is pretty terrible. Um, And so for for their salaries who have been so stagnant for so long, um, they they know that they're likely not going to see any more money than what they make. Um, And so many of them don't have any other skills because they've been pushed into baseball their entire lives by people who have told them, that they they can make it to the major leagues. And so they have this vision of, of making it and of, you know, being a millionaire one day that then they have to um, reconcile that with the actual way that they live their life, um, which is very much paycheck to paycheck, um, trying to, to move in with family members uh, in the off season to save money, um, you know, scrounging up meal tickets, um, and so it's a constant concern for them. And then that feeds back into um, the time that they can spend trying to improve themselves and trying to improve um, their baseball skills, which is obviously something that people think the minor leagues are all about. But it really inhibits that progress because um, they they have to, you know, first try and figure out how they're going to have, you know, any sort of basic necessities of life before they can think about, you know, spending X number of hours in the gym or finding a trainer or hiring a nutritionist, you know, finding time to watch film 
you know, anything of that nature. And you make a use kind of Latin players as a, as a case study here. Um, ESPN's recent series on uh, the lives of Latin baseball players, I think, was very illuminating to a lot of people who might not have considered what um, players from Central America and the Caribbean have to go through when they arrive here. Um, how do how does their experience fit into um, the issues facing minor leaguers more generally? So they. Um, obviously have a little bit more difficult time um, because they have to come to a new country, learn a new culture, learn a new language, while um, also trying to fit in with a bunch of of white Americans predominantly um, who, you know, have been told their entire lives that, that baseball should be played a particular style, and that's not the style that's that these Latin players play baseball with, they generally more passionate. Um, and so right Im- immediately there's this sort of um, disconnect between uh, these Latin players and between um, these white Americans. Um, so people kind of have to uh, work with that. Um, and so the Latin players have to adapt to a whole new culture, a whole new language, whole new uh, system of baseball. Um, while also having the same concerns that um, these other players have. And then particularly you have certain Latin players who who sign larger contracts um, and they face a lot of resentment from uh, these white American players who uh, disapprove of the way that many of these Latin players play baseball and who are obviously jealous of these contracts. Right. Yeah, um, yeah go ahead, Zach. Please. So, uh, I mean, Mary did a really great job of kind of de- detailing the cultural pressures that are on Latin American players who were in the minor leagues and how it's difficult, you know, making kind of a pittance uh, while facing these pressures. But I think, um, I mean, we faced, we saw a big change in the collective bargaining agreement last fall and winter um, with regards to uh, international amateur player mm-hmm. signings, um, and a lot of a lot. A lot of younger professional players in the lower minors are still living off their signing bonuses, um, whether they are drafted um, you know, from the United States, Puerto Rico um, to territories, or whether they are signed internationally. Um, this is where they make their money, really. Um, whether they get you know you thousand dollars, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars or upwards of a couple million dollars in, uh, you know, the uppermost case, um, we're going to kind of see a bit of a crunch with the new international rules, um, the limits on spending, um, the possible move toward an international draft. They were able to stave that off uh, in this bargaining agreement. But I think at 2020, when this one is up, uh, I think the owners are going to push for that very heavily. And I don't know if the Players Association is going to be able to really resist uh, they already seem to be kind of uh, working out what they might be able to give up uh, in kind of concession um, and maybe get out of uh, a deal where they agree to an international draft. Um, so the economic pressures are very real, uh, and I think they're going to get for a lot worse because players are not going to be able to kind of live off their signing bonuses as they might have in the past, especially for international players. 
Mary, you make a point about uh, minor league baseball players not having a union, which makes this whole process uh, much more difficult. Without organization, you can't uh, negotiate uh, terms, um, and you really don't have a whole lot of leverage. Why is it that minor leaguers uh, have had such a difficult time unionizing, and, and what are the future prospects uh, of them being able to form a union in the future? So players, minor league players, were, were first left out of um, the MLBPA at its inception, um, and the MLBPA hasn't really had um, any sort of major reason to include them since then. Um, they also, uh, minor league players themselves um, also are, have such a tenuous relationship um, with these organizations where they, they don't want uh, to find any reason um, for these organizations to let them go, to DFA them, it's like whatever, um, because this is their, their only source of, of income. Um, and then, again, minor league players don't want to attach themselves to any sort of union movement because they don't see them they don't envision themselves uh, sticking around in the minor leagues long enough for it to be any sort of benefit for them because they all have these aspirations of eventually making it to the majors um, and then joining the MLBPA and, you know, essentially being set. Uh, and then uh, the MLBPA has, has slowly um, bartered uh, minor league players' rights um, to, to get more rights for uh, major league players and, uh, and so that's uh, weekend even more the minor league position because you have the MLPPA and the owners uh, teaming up together um, against these minor league players that have very little leverage themselves. Um, so there, there's um, been a few uh, discussions of uh, forming a union, but they haven't really gotten very far recently. Um, but um, that that could change sometime in the future um, and it likely will uh, if if these issues kind of get more airtime um, and if if fans start siding more with the minor league group uh, minor league players against uh, the owners um, but for the immediate future uh, there's there's no real uh, indication that a minor league union will be formed yeah and it seems very unlikely that minor league um, issues are going to like these are going to be brought into the spotlight given that such a small amount of attention was paid uh, to this court case mm -hmm. uh, when the when the ruling was brought down on Monday. Um, so from one from one downer to in the next, uh, this one on a maybe maybe broader political um, scale, um, Joe Madden. And manager of the Chicago Cubs, uh, Tom Ricketts, the controlling owner of the Chicago Cubs, along with John Lackey, John Lester, Chris Bryant, and Anthony Rizzo, all visited um, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, uh, at the White House. Um, I believe it was on Wednesday. We're recording this today on Wednesday. Um, gave him, you know, a 45 Cubs jersey. They exchanged the usual pleasantries. Um, this would be a non-event pretty much at any other point uh, 
in American history, given that teams do this with regular basis on a regular basis when they when they win championships. Um, but this raised a few eyebrows, um, namely because of a quote uh, that. Madden gave, um, and I'm going to read this uh, quote. I like the United States a lot. I like living here a lot, and I like everything that it represents a lot. When you get a chance as a citizen to go to the White House, you go. Whether you like the person that's running the country or not, out of respect to the office itself, you go. I don't agree with all the other banter that's going on right now because I have a different perspective. I like living here a lot. I like this country a lot. I much prefer living here and some of the other places that adopt different methods of government. I think sometimes that get con- gets confused when people want to take a stand and not really realize what we actually have here, which is a lot than most every place else. We'll ignore the odd syntax on that last sentence. Um, but uh, this was in response to some criticism that the Cubs uh, received that they were going to be making this visit. And Mary, you wrote uh, a whole article about this, objecting to Madden's position. And um, again, Zach is a Cubs fan, so I'm definitely going to want to hear his thoughts on this. But Mary, what was the what was the objection that you took with with Madden's stance? Um, why was his kind of like blanket uh, respect for the office of the presidency misguided in your view? Uh, so first off, that's just not how American politics has worked. Um, that that they have people hold these offices that that the general population is supposed to revere them. Um, it, it's actually the opposite, where um, these offices. And the people who occupy them um, constantly have to be held accountable for their actions. Um, so right then and there, that's um, you know just just the wrong way of looking at American government. Um, and then especially to say it um, with this current administration, um, where it seems like the president does not have any sort of respect for um, the presidency, um, let alone having, you know, any sort of idea what the presidency actually entails. Uh, it just seems like a bizarre thing to, to try and uphold this idea that that we should revere the presidency when the president doesn't revere the presidency. Um, and then he it just kind of, uh, he goes on and on and talks about how um, eventually that he doesn't understand why people are protesting this administration, um, even though Protests are, are kind of the, the foundation of, of American democracy, um, civic participation. Um, and, and he just seems to like think that that stagnancy is is apolitical um, when when, you know, that's actually siding with the current administration, which is a political position um, and it's impeding uh, change and progress and the implementation of diversity. Um, and all of those are, are political stances. Um, so just the fact that he thought that he would make this uncontroversial apolitical statement um, really just details how how um, screwed up people see polit- uh, politics today in America. Uh, playing devil's advocate here, could Madden not make the case then that he is merely going to pay a visit to the president? rather than align himself with any particular policy or ideology that the president himself uh, may stand for and represent? Um, uh, not in the sense that 
they already went to the White House. So this is another, a second trip to the White House um, that's specifically designed to go there to see Donald Trump. Um, so in that sense, it, it's very political. They're going for, for one reason only, um, and that is to meet with the the current president um, who holds all of these views and who is is um, very key in the um, erosion of, of American democracy at the moment. Uh, so, so I don't think he can really uh, excuse himself on those grounds. Zach, uh, the as Mary mentioned, the Cubs visited um, the White House and got their official East Room kind of unveiling uh, when President Obama occupied the office of the president. Um, this happened very, very close to Inauguration Day. They got it in just under the wire. At the time... I had kind of been led to understand that this was because a lot of people in the organization did not want to do it with President Trump. Um, there was also recently I, I read a report that actually was because uh, President Obama wanted to do it because he had spent 30 years or 25 years in Chicago and wanted to honor a Chicago team. Can you give us uh, maybe a clearer picture of the timeline as to why the team went uh, to the White House in January and then maybe why this trip, uh, this second trip occurred? Yeah, I think a lot of the pressure was probably coming from Theo Epstein, uh, who is um, essentially a Democratic establishment favorite at this point. Uh, a lot of people right after that visit thought he would be a great candidate for office. A lot of people have thought that for a lot of years. Um, and I think he has an affinity uh, you know, for President Obama um, and really wanted to go bring his team uh, to go see him before he was out of office. Um, the Ricketts relationship with Donald Trump is also very complex. They were donors to other campaigns during the primary. Um, they've... Uh, yeah, well, one of the brothers was the governor of Nebraska. Um, they've been involved in Republican Party politics for ages and ages and ages. Um, and I don't think they really enjoyed uh, Trump's kind of crowning as the head of the Republican Party uh, and as the president. Um, but now, a few months later, I think they're kind of those feelings have waned Um I'm not really sure why they would have agreed to do this um, other than kind of a personal desire to do so um, among the players and the coaches uh, and the team owners. Um, it's I don't know a whole lot about the inner workings here. I don't know if they how they were invited, um, if they were just saying, hey, we're in Washington. Let's stop by. Let's see if they're home. <laughs> <laughs> not sure exactly uh, what happened there, um, but. It's yeah, I mean, it's kind of unusual. Uh, it's certainly unusual for them to to make a second visit. Um, there were some folks conspicuously absent both at the first visit in January and at the visit uh, today, Wednesday. Um, we had Carl Edwards saying he wanted to go see the dinosaur museums instead of meet Donald Trump, essentially. Uh, it was very funny, but also very pointed that none of the uh, black American players on the Cubs showed up. All Hayward um, Russell and Edwards were absent. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty hairy. Um, in terms of timeline, I'm not so sure. 
but I think those kind of are the impulses that kind of drove the two visits. Yeah, and and who were the absences uh, in January with the visit to to President Obama? Um, I mean the the most obvious one was Jake Arrieta, who said he had a family emergency. I think right. everyone else was there. Um, but Arietta had kind of ruffled some feathers with some comments around election day as well. Uh, so that kind of, that reiterated what some folks had kind of put in their mind about him at that point. Uh, and, uh, we just got to note that John Lackey was also not present okay. and looks like John Lester wasn't either. Oh yeah. You know, and, uh, and both of them, and both of them were there, uh, today, uh, for, for the Trump meeting. Uh, you're a Cubs fan, Zach. Uh, I would never come close to characterizing you as even uh, a centrist Democrat. Uh, so, uh, what is your what is your reaction um, a to Ma- a to the visit uh, and and b to to Madden's comments and and how they uh, almost feel like uh, they're saying stick to sports but with more words. Yeah, I think I, I actually kind of disagree with Mary a little bit and that I think um, Madden's comments about kind of revering the presidency and saying, hey, if they ask you, you must go. Um, they fly in the face of kind of what this administration has done with the presidency and their attitude towards the whole thing. I, I, I don't think that any team or any citizen should feel like they have to go visit the president if they're asked. Um, I mean, there's a certain kind of uh, resistance fomenting right now. And that's kind of been present, you know, in waves throughout American history. Uh, and I mean, Mary came to visit me at the museum I work at, uh, where we have a lot about the Boston tea party since it's where it began. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, very much kind of in the bedrock of the United States, um, you know, those founding principles. So, uh, that kind of, kind of irks me. Um, I mean, it's, it's very easy to get mad over these things. We know that, that most baseball players will lean very conservatively. They've you know, been brought up not necessarily to think politically, to think critically about politics. They're baseball players. They've dedicated their life to their craft, um, kind of live in their own bubbles a lot of the time. Um, and a lot of them come from you know, more well-off backgrounds because uh, you need the resources to kind of make it to a, the professional level in any sport. Um, so that's kind of how I feel about the whole thing. It's, I mean, worth kind of characterizing in the history of, of you know, po- American politics and baseball's kind of position and engagement with American politics. Um, not necessarily anything new, not necessarily anything kind of out of the ordinary. I actually think it's, it's pretty much expected, unfortunately. Mary, what risk do we run in trying to couch sports, professional sports, American professional sports as an apolitical space. Um, what, what consequences are there when we should just acknowledge or when people tell us that we should um, keep um, political or ideological or moral arguments out of that realm of um of public culture? Uh, so I think we run the risk of just maintaining it as a, as a white male institution uh, because for, for, you know, a lot of its history, that's what it was. It was, you know, the, a white person's sport. Um, you know, black people were barred from playing um, for, for decades. Um, and even after integration, it, you know, 
they, they faced a, a lot of obstacles um, that white players did not face. Um, there, there are no women. Um, so I think that if we don't address these issues, if we try and, and sweep them under the rug or, you know, make them, you know, radicalize them, um, uh, we, we just run the risk of, of you know, being stagnant and, and not progressing and not, you know, being open to diversity on any of these fronts. Um, how do we trace the, the, the trajectory, um, of, of how politics, uh, gets involved specifically in baseball? I'm thinking of, there were once at one time people like, uh, Kurt Flood. There were at times people like Bill Lee, um, who maybe took more openly political stances that didn't necessarily lean rightward. Uh, in the game. Um, and at least from my vantage point, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of that or maybe as much of that so high profile anymore. Of course, there are people like Sean Doolittle um, and other players who do who do make their voices heard. Um, but I just wonder, was there a time where players did feel more comfortable being more political? And, and Zach, feel free to jump in on this too. Uh, yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, Mary used the term white man sport, and that's a term that uh, Adam Jones used just you know a couple months ago when talking about his experience playing in Boston here, uh, where I am now, but where he was, you know, had to deal with someone throwing a bag of peanuts at him, someone hurling racial epithets at him. Um, and it's not something new that these you know black players have experienced at the major league level. Um, I think what has kind of stamped out a lot of the political agitation that players might have had in the past is uh, the rising major league salary. Um, you know, it's it's enough to kind of placate a lot of players. Um, they feel like they might have a good lot uh, and that they're getting paid millions of dollars um, and they don't need to speak out. Or, uh, you know, it's not, of course not the case for everyone. Um, we you know still have the Adam Joneses. We still have the Dexter Fowlers who will speak out. We still have, you know, quite a few players kind of across the spectrum in terms of representation uh, who will talk about politics and how baseball is politics or baseball uh, is part of politics. Um, and I think that's extremely important. It's, you know, the case from the inception of the game. Um, it was founded in a you know, certain political environment. Um, very pointedly, uh, black players, women players were excluded right you know, from the outright um, and we're kind of dealing with this legacy still you know, 150 years later or so. Um, that's, you know, integration was a process. Um, it's not like it all happened at once. This is it, it all kind of plays into this, you know, again, kind of a, a bedrock thing uh, that gets to the core of what Major League Baseball, what organized baseball are. Um, and in terms of representation, in terms of, uh, you know, political actors within the game. Um, things have changed quite a bit, but you know, still grappling with the original, the original legacy. So we're gonna wrap this up real soon, but I do have like one final question um, specifically for Zach. Does this uh, visit to the Trump White House make it less likely that you will accept Madden's invitation to ride in his RV in the future? Uh, well, he did email me the other day, uh, <laughs> so I, I'm kind of waiting to get back to him. Um, I'd probably still go. He seems like he would be an enjoyable person to, you know, uh, I don't drink wine, so I'd probably bring some beer. 
But uh, I mean, you know, in terms of hanging out with people, it's, it's a lot different than than kind of discussing politics. I don't think Joe Madden has really thought about a whole lot, probably. Uh, <laughs> you know, not a slide on him, but he's a baseball lifer. That's what he does. Um, but in terms of fandom, I don't think, um, except in the most kind of blatant uh, circumstances, it's really behooves you to say, man, I don't really want to be a fan of this team. I don't want to watch this sport anymore. Um, I don't, I would never begrudge someone for saying, yeah, there's no women in baseball. I don't want to watch baseball because of that. That makes sense to me. Um, you know, it's not my experience. It's not how I particularly feel. I still enjoy the sport. Um, so there's a certain amount you have to kind of partition this off um, in terms of just watching the actual games, being a fan. Um, but that doesn't kind of preclude you from the responsibility of engaging with this, talking about this. Um, and you know, I do this every day. That's, that's what I do. That's how I primarily engage with, uh, with baseball and with the Cubs. Um, I watch them every day, but I write pieces about them every week or two, uh, that often have to do with politics. There is a great deal of wonderful, um, insights and important, um, points that Mary addresses in her piece, which is entitled Joe Madden, Donald Trump, and Contemporary Baseball Politics, uh, which was published on Wednesday at beyondtheboxscore.com. Um, and you should also read her piece on the Ninth Circuit ruling, which is entitled, quite pointedly, Minor League Players Should Be Paid a Living Wage. Um, you can find both of those pieces at beyondtheboxscore.com. Um, and you can also listen to Mary and our very own co-producer, Jen Mac Ramos, on Hardball Times Audio, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Mary, uh, this was an absolutely wonderful conversation, and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was great. And Zach, you provided uh, more than adequate fodder uh, for uh, labor and for how uh, Cubs fans must be reckoning with a great deal, uh, including Miguel Montero's DFA. Um, so I thank you, and you can follow him on Twitter at Beer and Trumpets. That's the letter N. It's a uh, it's a hell of a follow, Danny. Uh, sorry, Danny. <laughs> Zach, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, and that is going to do it for us this week at InPlay Podcast. You be sure to uh, listen and subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you use of your choice. Um, be sure to follow the show at InPlay Podcast, um, and you can find all of our work over at BeyondTheBoxScore.com. If you're feeling frisky, follow me on Twitter at Evan Davis Sports, and be sure to follow Nick Stellini, my co-host at Stellini Tweets, for our producer, Sean Brody, for our co-producer, Jen Mac Ramos, and for our theme music composer, Trapdoor Social. I am Evan Davis. Thank you so much for joining us. We will talk to you next week. Sunshine, you gotta make up your mind
The Music for In Play podcast has been provided by Trapdoor Social. Their self-titled album is available now. Find them at Trapdoor Social on Facebook and Twitter and at trapdoorsocial.com. I see you in the crowd tonight. Blood pools in my head. I should feel much closer now. The distance grows instead. Your words are like a symphony. You're reaching for my soul. A melody that turns and soars and always.